Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 214, The Road to War. This week, first of all, a message from an old friend of the History of England. Zach, over to you. Hello listeners of the History of England. My name is Zach Twomley and I am the host of When Diplomacy Fails podcast. If you do know who I am, you might remember me from the guest episode I did, which was on the 1314 Battle of Bannockburn. Yeah, that was five years ago, which means that When Diplomacy Fails podcast is five years old. Which means that if you'd like to head over to When Diplomacy Fails, you'll see that we're having a party of sorts. I like to call it Five Weeks to Run Wild, and it basically involves me releasing two episodes every day for five whole weeks. We're remastering our old episodes, we're releasing collaboration episodes with different podcasters, and we're releasing loads of extra original content in there too for good measure. It's going to be a great party, it's going to be a great time. The only thing I'm missing out is cake. But also, the only thing I'm missing out is you. So if you'd like to head on over there, that would be swell. Just a reminder on how to do that... Go to WDFpodcast.com or just simply search When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. Other than that, my name is Zach, and I hope you enjoy this latest episode. Excellent, and happy birthday, Zach. Now, just like the sting, last week was supposed to be the setup, the preparing of the ground for the wars of Henry VIII, so that we could get to violence and mayhem this week. We may well still get to a bit of violence, but as always, last time I messed up and talked too much. It's always been a personal problem. Sorry. Still, I did do most of it. All we need to do now is talk through the strategic situation a bit more. We spoke about four main players in 1512 last week. Ferdinand, the quite remarkably devious of Spain, Louis XII, the decrepit of France, the warrior Pope, Julius II, and for England and France in particular, there was also Scotland the brave but relatively small, and James IV. Of course, some of you will have realised that it should have been five we spoke about including Maximilian the more-than-a-little-potty Holy Roman Emperor. The argument between this lot was Italy. Funnily enough, that is, funny peculiar as opposed to funny ha-ha, Italy had been through a period of quite exceptional peacefulness after the Peace of Lodi in 1454. Really, it had been a triumph. The art had flowered, the Renaissance princes had pratted, the olive oil had flowed, and any other anachronistic stereotypes I can come up with had happened. The problem was Naples. Quick geography lesson first, and I will find a map and pop it onto the webby thing I mentioned so much. I've always loved geography, and so I'm tempted to have a hack at Oxbow Lakes and interlocking spurs because I love them so. But let me instead talk of Italy. In the sun-soaked Mediterranean, which as you know is superior in every way to the lard-loving barbarian lands of England, lie the islands of Sicily, Sardinia and the Balearics. These form a sea and trade-based empirette under Ferdinand and the crown of Aragon. And not just the islands. 
On the south of Italy was the Kingdom of Naples, stretching in technical geopolitical terms about a third of the way up the peninsula. This also was part of the Aragonese Empire, so you can say this is a really high point for Aragon, though let me tell you, later in their history they and Barcelona will play a few fairly poor hands and end up with a couple of centuries of misery, but that, my friends, is a feature of the wheel of fortune on which we all helplessly turn. Travelling north from Naples then, we come to the Papal States, forming a substantial part of central Italy. Yes, the good Bishop of Rome was very much a temporal ruler as well as a spiritual one. Now, you might say this is a bad thing, but the popes had a point. They were pretty tired of everyone walking all over them, dragging them here, there and everywhere and telling them what to do. They decided they needed some physical clout to keep themselves independent. And until the rest of Europe decided to grow up and keep religion out of politics, which would take the death of many millions to achieve, by the way, they did have a point. Travel to the north of Italy and you have that glorious profusion of Italian city-states beloved of the English middle classes in poorly designed straw hats. But by this stage, we're clearly down to a few bosses in the north. Florence, Genoa. Venice was not just a magnificent trading port, it owned a substantial land-based empire in the northeast. But the boss of them all was the mighty Duchy of Milan, dominating the passes from the barbarian lands of the north, sitting full four square in the middle of northern Italy, big, arrogant, magnificent, mildly irritating. Now then, so that you can understand what's going on, let me tell you a story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then let me begin. Many years ago, when the earth was young, the fair lands of Sicily and Naples had been ruled by a handsome prince from France. But in 1282, which you might notice is a good 200 years ago, the handsome French prince had been turfed out on his little ear through something called the Sicilian Vespers. But the handsome French princes never forgot their empire in the sun, and they dreamed of regaining their rightful heritage. And so, in 1494, the handsome and fun-loving French king, Charles VIII, decided to free the people of Sicily from the Aragonese tyranny, so that they could once more live in the light. And so he marched tens of thousands of hard-faced, hairy soldiers through the length of Italy, killing and maiming in his path, discovering syphilis on the way, and regained his lands. Meanwhile, the Pope, in his simple, spiritual hovel of gold and jewels, did not like having a powerful, handsome French prince on his doorstep, so he formed a holy league to teach the naughty French a lesson. Princes from all over Italy and Europe came to his call to teach the evil French princey a lesson. Even a small, damp island in the mists of the northern seas joined the call, though they never did anything because their prince was too busy in his counting-house but the evil Charles VIII was forced to scuttle back to France, leaving his army to be squished. But Italy was still not free. Actually, should we stop the fairy tale thing now? So look, the French were left with a thirst to never give on Italy, but also on the way they'd conquered Milan, and they'd kept Milan. So when Louis XII became king in 1499, he was also the Duke of Milan, and he was part of the Italian power structure. France was therefore drawn inexorably into the maelstrom of Italian politics. Spare them no sympathy. They created the problem in the first place. My kiddies and I were talking about the best advice we'd ever had. Now, I said it was to never wear a brown belt with black shoes. 
But really, let me take you to Galatians 6 verses 7 to 9 in an entirely secular way, of course. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Here endeth the lesson. France was reaping what they'd sowed. Louis XII was ever anxious to increase his power in Italy and regain the kingdoms of the south they'd not given up on Naples and Sicily. Meanwhile, Aragon and indeed Spain, in the form of King Ferdinand, was ever anxious to stop them doing so. And Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, was ever anxious to stop France dominating Italy and the papacy and thus potentially crushing them. And in the middle, the poor old Pope was ever anxious to stop any of these blokes taking away his freedom and independence and sought always to play everyone off against each other. The leagues and alliances that shifted were bewildering. Blink and you'd miss the latest configuration. Because, of course, every configuration was inherently unstable. Once anybody got an upper hand, the league dissolved and reunited to cut the head off the latest tallest poppy. Once the Holy League had done its thing, the Pope got worried about Venice and formed the League of Cambrai, which was essentially everyone against Venice, including France against Venice. By the time of our story, that league had fallen to pieces because the Pope then got worried about France in turn. Because in 1509, Louis XII won a massive victory over Venice at a place called Agnadello. As Machiavelli wrote, In one day, the Venetians lost all they had acquired over the last 800 years of strenuous effort. So the Pope went to Venice and said, Hey, Venice, (laughs) sorry about trying to rub you out of existence. Let's be friends. Let's be friends and gang up on France. Venice said, Yeah, sure. Now, you might well imagine that England and Scotland were irrelevant to all of this. After all, neither were very rich, they were terribly far away, and they hadn't made an effective military intervention for so long, no one actually knew if they had armies anymore. But you can see, there was a potential to use little old England as a tiny counterweight in the balance of power. Spain and the Empire might want to use them as a distraction in France's back door. France might want to use Scotland as a distraction in England's back door. From a continental perspective, I'm not sure it was any more than at this level the potential for mild irritation and distraction. England and Scotland have completely different perspectives, of course. Henry would like to see himself as a glorious successor to Henry V, feared throughout Europe and arbiter of Christendom. Scotland's James IV was quite sure he was also a glorious Renaissance prince, quite capable of sitting at the top table. OK, so I think that's enough background. Back to England where Bishop Fox and his peace party still controlled the King's Council, despite the wishes of their prince to go and win glory on the fields of France. But in 1509, all the other powers in the European playground were ganging up on Venice at that time, so there was no ally for him available. Although Henry was rude to the French ambassador, to his fury in 1510, he'd actually had to sign a peace treaty with France. Ah! Henry was not alone in his desire for war. Remember that Henry is a medieval king and nobles were back in favour around him and on the council. So there was also a war party. And in 1510, Henry managed to slip through an alliance with Ferdinand, which basically chopped the legs off the French alliance he'd just signed. He still couldn't do anything about it, but if the League of Cambrai fell to pieces, he'd be up there like a rat up a drain. Which handily, of course, was exactly what happened. Henry had not been entirely powerless. He'd sent an ambassador to the papal court, a man called Christopher Bainbridge, the Archbishop of York, a man so rapidly anti-French that if you showed him a croissant, he'd start frothing at the mouth. 
and not in a good way, if there is a good way to froth at the mouth. Bainbridge's job was to discuss an anti-French alliance with the Pope, and the Pope became interested. At which point, Bainbridge would shamefacedly forced to admit that, oh, hadn't he mentioned it? <laughs> we do have an alliance with the French at the moment, which got Pope Julius proper blazing. You're all rascals, he raged, which was just great coming from the ultimate rascal. But hey, this is diplomacy, not truth, light and justice and the search for world peace. And so begins the dance. Actually, one of the joys in all this, a slightly depressing joy, it must be said, is the absolutely outrageous duplicity of Ferdinand of Aragon. Seriously, he will, until the day of his death, systematically skin poor old Henry, stitch him up like a kipper. And every time, Henry will come back for more, like a puppy. (laughs) In 1511, Henry's father-in-law, Ferdinand, of course, suggested Henry might like to help him out on an expedition against the Moors of Northern Africa. Yeah! roared Henry enthusiastically and sent 1,000 men under Lord Darcy. When they arrived in Spain, Ferdinand said, What on earth are you doing here? I'm not doing any such thing. So Darcy did what the English do in Spain, getting outrageously drunk, vomiting everywhere, getting into fights with the locals, and the only thing they didn't do is eat fish and chips. Back home they came, nothing accomplished, Not the most glorious start to Henry's military career. Never mind, because by October 1511, Henry and his ambassadors had agreed with Pope Julius to join his brand new shiny league. This was another holy league, which would piously seek to throw the French out of Italy on the point of a sword. All the playground bullies this side, Ferdinand, Maximilian, Julius, Henry, would gang up on Louis and the French. Venice, presumably, are breathing a heavy sigh of relief at this point, trying to look small and insignificant in case anyone else decided to come and pummel them. In front of his castle, Henry let it rip. The French, he shouted, would lacerate the seamless garment of Christ. And he had the Pope's backing. Now at last, the council cheered enthusiastically and all agreed to war, Fox amongst them, presumably, now that his master, the Pope, was declaring this to be a Christian duty. Note one thing in particular. If we are wondering about whether it is Henry or his ministers that decide on policy, a constant question of his reign, there's little doubt about it here. It's Henry. Actually, in an example of buck-passing that is so typical of Henry, 20 years later he would blame it all on evil counsellors. Tommy Rot. Not sure if anyone uses the expression Tommy Rot anymore, but here it is, gentle listeners. Tommy Rot. It was Henry that led his council to war. There was a plan It seemed like a good plan. It would take advantage of the fact that Ferdinand was a land-based power just over the border from southern France. So, 6,000 beef Englishmen will be shipped down to northwestern Spain in Navarre, close to Aquitaine, the so long part of the Plantagenet crown. And they wouldn't need to take up ship space with artillery and horses because Ferdinand would join them there with loads of horses. So cool, the joint army would then massacre its way through southern France. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Okay, slightly odd since landing in Navarre meant landing in a sovereign kingdom that didn't actually belong to Ferdinand, but never mind, just a detail. Henry looked around his young, noble minions, all pressing forward, eager to be chosen for the fight. Me, me, pick me, no, me, me, no, pick me. Except Darcy, presumably, who was in the background still picking fish and chips and shame out of his teeth. There were two minions selected to lead. Edward Howard would lead a fleet to ravage the coast of Brittany of which he did a pretty good job, actually. 
though in the process one of Henry's other minions met his end. Sir Thomas Knivet was blown up. His pal Edward Howard was of course upset, and he declared that he would never see the king in the face till he hath revenged the death of the noble and valiant knight Sir Thomas Knivet. It was the Marquis of Dorset, Thomas Grey, descendant of Elizabeth Woodville, who would lead the glorious land army to Navarre. Off they went, the fair breeze flew and the furrow followed free, and they duly arrived. Ferdinand, however, had absolutely nothing for them. No horses, no artillery. Zip. zip a not even a sausage. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. After a bit of hanging about, Dorset suggested they attack Bayonne over in France to have a base for the forthcoming glorious conquest of France. At which point, it became clear why Ferdinand had suggested this plan of attack, and it had absolutely nothing to do with the Holy League, the seamless garment of Christendom or the conquest of France. Ferdinand couldn't give a tinker's curse about the Holy League, the seamless garment of Christendom or the conquest of France. He wanted Navarre. He was horribly untidy, sitting out there in northern Spain and not belonging to him. So he'd brought the English to help him out. Hey, he said to Dorset, since you're here, look. Look, over there in the corner of the playground, look at that irritating little kid over there. Let's go and beat him up instead. To his credit, Dorset would have none of it. Sadly for him, though, it all fell to pieces all around him. His men were demoralised, low on food, and the heavens had opened and they were wet. Then the worst imaginable disaster happened. Yep, that's it. The English ran out of beer. And everyone knows that continental beer is essentially just coloured water or worse. And so they drank wine... Everyone is equally aware that the English can't take their wine, so they all got ill. It's unlikely that Ferdinand had given them the good stuff anyway. The captains all fell out and started arguing, and while they did, it's quite possible that the rank and file said, enough already, got on the ships, frog-marched their captains there too, and set off for home. Though it's likely it's got to be said that the captains probably came to the same conclusion. And off they set across the Bay of Biscay, And they passed the ship from Henry going the other way, telling them to fight Ferdinand in Navarre after all. But even if they had received said letter before they left, they were a busted flush by this stage anyway, and they couldn't have fought their way out of a paper bag. Now, let's talk about management techniques. Just to return to my increasing theme of curmudgeonly old manness, one of the reasons I find it difficult to bother about footy anymore, that's soccer by the way, is the constant managerial whinging that goes on. Some overpaid footballer with a mental age of a four-year-old commits what is essentially assault and battery or cheating on the field and the manager invariably stands up and says it was all the referee's fault. Turns out that actually world poverty is basically all down to the ref in the managerial lexicon. But look, give them their due. Their task is to get the best out of their players so they defend them to the hill from the public and then they give them a dressing down in private. 
So, when Ferdinand sent the most outrageous letter in international diplomacy to Henry, saying that his men had let him down and deserted him, along with a lot of very unkind accusations, including that the English captains were basically French, by the way, which is really not cricket, you can imagine what Dorset and his pals might have expected from their boss. They might have expected a bit of support. Poor old Dorset. In fact, what happened was that he and his fellow officers were brought in front of the council and the Spanish ambassadors, would you believe, and get this, declared guilty of serious misconduct. Sorry, Ferdinand, you're so right, said Henry. We messed up, we so messed up. The Spanish ambassadors were even asked to name their punishment. Said ambassadors must have run back to their room so that they could howl with laughter. Dorset was even put on trial. OK, there is an argument that this was actually a very clever piece of play-acting just for the benefit of Spain to keep Ferdinand on board so that Henry could try again. That if he was to have another war with Ferdinand at his side, he had to pretend to accept Ferdinand's story. It's also interesting to think about what role in this Catherine might have had. So it looks on the face of it as though she was basically on her father's side. She told the Spanish ambassador that... The king was already informed how shamefully the English had behaved and he was very angry with them. She also told him that she had told the king and some of his councillors that they ought to give money to the king Ferdinand with which to carry on the war in Guienne if they wished to win that duchy. David Starkey's theory is that it was indeed all a stitch-up but that it was Henry and the English who were now threading the needle, not Ferdinand. And at the centre was Catherine. The proceedings to which the Spanish ambassadors had been invited were all conducted in English, so they relied on Catherine to translate. It was Catherine who told them that Henry accepted Ferdinand's version of events. It is a much more attractive story, both painting a much more positive picture of Catherine, a much more positive picture of a still happy and close marriage between Catherine and Henry, and it makes Henry look a little less like a chump. It does take a bit of believing, though, because really, theatre or not, any real understanding of Ferdinand would tell you that all you could rely on with that guy was that he would do what was in his best interests at any point in time. The play acting was largely irrelevant. But maybe, yes. Maybe it might have put more pressure on Ferdinand to come into line with the rest of the Allies. Whichever approach you decide to believe, the Allies did indeed keep talking. And in 1513, a new scheme was cooked up, brokered by Pope Julius. This time... There would be a four-way attack on France. Seriously, the French goose would be so comprehensively cooked this time that the meat would literally fall off the bone when the dish was opened. Henry would attack from the north. Maximilian would attack from... Well, undefined actually, but Maximilian would definitely attack. No need to worry about that, friends. Ferdinand would attack from the south and the Pope would lead his army into southeastern France. Getting Maximilian on board was actually something of a struggle. And in the struggle, a fine new tradition was born, that of English gold financing European wars. Henry agreed to basically subsidise Maximilian's war effort with his father's nest egg. Let us now allow entrance into our story of one Thomas Woolsey. Can't actually remember how much I've told you about the lad. Sorry about that. But you might like to know that there is, for members, a bright and shiny shed cast available all about him. So if you've been teetering on the brink of becoming a member, here is all the excuse you need. Silly not to. So I'll keep it brief. Wolsey was the son of a butcher from Ipswich in southeast of England. 
These stories have a way of running that the supposedly lowly of birth wasn't really that lowly, you know, a bit like Giles Daubeny, still part of the top 1% wealthiest inhabitants of England. But Wolsey was reassuringly not of the elite, the son of a moderately comfortable merchant with a house worth about eight quid. His father had married reasonably well, and the father-in-law had managed to send the obviously talented young man to Oxford, where by the tender age of 15 he'd graduated with a degree. Wolsey's career had languished a bit, kicking around Oxford for a while, eventually being given a living at a church by the Marcus of Dorset, as it happens, but he'd had a few problems. He seems to have left Oxford under something of a cloud, with the suspicion of the misuse of university funds hanging over him, and then in his new town of Lymington, he'd been thrown into the stocks by the local lord that he'd managed to annoy. Nonetheless, I'm pretty sure you do know this, he'd managed to win the patronage of Bishop Fox, and he'd made it to being royal chaplain. And this brought him into contact with the king, which is, of course, a double-edged sort of thing. But Wolsey was a fixer, and he'd made himself really, really useful. With Fox's patronage and the king's support, by winter 1509, Wolsey had been made a councillor and the king's almoner. In 1510, he was made registrar of the noble order of the garter. Now, if you are looking for a way of hobnobbing with the rich and famous, being registrar of the noble order of the garter could not be better. And as I am sure you are all thoroughly aware, in the world of 16th century England, it was not what you know, it was who you know that counted. A stream of grants came his way, and Wolsey's career was up and running. Wolsey had sat with his patron Fox on the peace party side in council discussions. His letters speak with great enthusiasm of any successes in the fight against the noble faction, who were all in favour of war, of course. So the likes of Thomas Howard, George Talbot, the Duke of Buckingham, the Earl of Northumberland. This Thomas Howard, by the way, is still the older gent, Earl of Surrey, actually, the man who'd fought with Richard III at Bosworth. Throughout the reign of Henry VII, he'd been working to restore the Howard reputation, and he was pretty much there. Both he and his son, also called Thomas, were of the war party. Anyway, we're not talking about Thomas Howard, we're talking about Thomas Wolsey. As I say, in 1511, Wolsey then jumped ship and became part of the war party. This has led to more than a little criticism about him. One theory is that Wolsey was out for himself in whatever decisions he made in the form of church advancement, and that he aimed at the ultimate prize, that of becoming Pope. And so when the chance came to help bring England to the side of the papacy, he leapt at the chance, leaving any principles well behind him. The other theory says the same thing in a slightly different way, to be honest, which was that he was simply directed by the quest for personal power and wealth in England, and that his greed led him to go any way the wind blew. Now, as we'll no doubt come to, or indeed you can find out now if you are a member, Wolsey was without doubt a lover of wealth, power and personal gain. But he was also not without his principles and a genuine desire to both improve the lot of the little people, particularly in access to justice, and a genuine desire to do a good job. And as far as Wolsey was concerned, there was one way to do a good job, the one only way and the ultimate responsibility, in fact, of every courtier, to serve the needs and the will of his prince. Henry wanted war, and therefore Henry should have war, and he should have a war well executed. You can say that Wolsey's reason for doing this was just because this was his way to win wealth and patronage, but it's hard to disprove that it might have not been his only motivation. But that Wolsey's effort and achievement demonstrates that he's anything but a time server. He worked morning till night. He was an extremely able and effective administrator. 
And so Wolsey jumped ship. By 1513, he was at the heart of an English administration and constantly in contact with the king. As war approached, he would be given the chance to reach the next level. The administration of all the logistics of the planned invasion of France would be up to him. He would be judged on the performance of the army in France. Not on generalship, of course. Leadership would go where it should go, to members of Henry's nobility. Good Lord, can't have the hoi polloi doing that sort of thing. But on all aspects of the logistics, if they had water, food, artillery, armour, weapons, horses, his career would be made. If it was a rerun of Dorset's campaign, he'd be toast. In 1513, then, the case for war seemed won. Pope Julius had upped the stakes still further. He stripped Louis of his title of most Christian king of France, and he conferred the title on none other than Henry Tudor, king of England. He also promised to do the coronation himself. There was one small condition, though, of making all of this public, the small matter of, oh, actually beating Louis. Until then, it must remain a secret. But in his knowledge of effective staff motivation and incentive schemes, Julius the Pope was clearly no slouch. While Wolsey worked from four in the morning to night, buying armour from Italy, hounding the royal ordnance for artillery, ordering up supplies and weapons, designing supply chains, Henry cleared the decks for action. You might remember one Edmund de la Poole, son of the old John de la Poole, Duke of Suffolk, elder brother of Richard de la Poole. Well, Richard de la Poole was making a name for himself on the continent and had acquired the nickname the White Rose and was being trumpeted by Louis as the rightful King of England. So in 1513, Henry finally did the deed and dragged Edmund out of the tower and had him executed. He had no desire to have a focus for revolution in his backyard while he was away. This time, Henry was himself going to take the ferry to France. Now, one of the things you need to know about Henry is that while you might think he's a vicious old tyrant with no sense of personal loyalty and utterly unscrupulous, actually, he has rather a delicate conscience. Yes, I can hear your hollow laughter, and you might well think that. For example, he will simply make up his worries about the validity of his marriage just to get rid of Catherine. But actually, he worried more about doing the right thing than you might think. And during that forthcoming debacle, probably has more religious conscience than the Pope has. There is another example on his way to war now. On Good Friday, 1513, the famous John Collett, great exponent of the new learning, preached in front of the king at the court at Greenwich Palace. Collett, in common with folk like Thomas More and Erasmus, was a firm pacifist exhorting the crowned heads of Europe to turn their skills to bringing peace, not war. It takes a brave man to preach against war in front of a court led by Henry and his nobility, but this is exactly what Collett did. Caesar and Alexander, he declared, were false heroes. It is Christ who set the real example. An unjust peace was always preferable to a just war. Now, a Ferdinand or a Maximilian or a Louis or even a Pope Julius, actually, would either have nodded approvingly and then ignored the thing, or possibly they'd have taken Collet down a back alley and given him a scene to, or locked him up in some small, damp, dark hole somewhere. But not Henry. Collet was staying in a priory of the observant friary close by Greenwich Palace. Henry hightailed it over there and met Collet in the garden. I've come to discharge my conscience, not to distract you from your studies he said, and entered into a discussion with Collett on the rights and wrongs of the campaign on which he was about to embark. By the end of it he had what he wanted, and probably needed, for his self-image. Collett told him that he'd never meant to dissuade Henry from his war in defence of the unity of the Church. All was light and happiness again. 
it sets a slightly more positive light on Henry again, does it not? Anyway, the time has come to stop. Once again, I have let the fun of all this stuff take over and really we've moved forward about two mm, nanometers, sorry and all. And we still have a bit of prep to do before we actually get over to France and have our battles and things. Since the king would be in France, who would keep the home fires burning while he was away? And what about Scotland? Where is James IV in all of this? We'll talk about this next time. And about Henry's first foray into the world of warfare, I promise next time we will do that. Meanwhile, best of luck and have a great week.